Welcome to The Factor, a global medical device podcast series powered by Agilis by Kymanox. Today's episode is hosted by Shannon Hosty, president of Agilis by Kymanox, an assistant professor in the quality education program at Pathway for Patient Health. She's joined by Rita Lin, director of human factors engineering at Kymanox. Rita's journey into human factors engineering began with her experiences in biomedical engineering, where she witnessed the intersection of technology and user experience during her time abroad in Central America. She had some eye-opening encounters with medical devices in underprivileged hospitals, and today she reflects on the challenges of inclusivity in clinical trials and the need for a deeper understanding of user demographics. So what is the role of empathy in human factors engineering? Let's find out. Here's Rita. I remember in college, I had the chance to work with Engineering World Health um, and go abroad with a bunch of other engineering students to work as technicians in um, hospitals in in Costa Rica and Nicaragua with the goal of being uh, to help them coordinate the medical devices that were being donated from all over the world uh, to these hospitals. And they were... of course, grateful for all those all those donations, but um, oftentimes they came without instructions, um, without extra repair equipment. If they did have instructions, oftentimes it was written to, to assume that the user was based out of um, the U.S. or you know a, a, a EU country. Um, so that was you know really eye opening, um, and it was very clear to me that that the end user. Uh, needs to be considered if they're going to get any use out of the device. Because otherwise, the other engineering colleague I was with, um, every day we would wake up and, and then go to the hospital and see, we called it the graveyard of medical devices. So there was a huge room in the back of the hospital where we would just go in and try to tinker and, and fix as many uh, pieces of equipment as we could with uh, just basic tools like soldering as well. You know, they had given us a little bit of basic engineering technician training to basically work with the field. But um, yeah, like a lot of other things that we did was also just try to Google and track down a bunch of instructions manuals for the hospital and translate them if they needed translation into Spanish. Um, so that was that was just such an awesome experience. Um, and then right out of college, like I mentioned, I was a quality engineer specifically um, in the post-market realm. And part of my job was to talk with customers of that manufacturing company um, to figure out what actually happened in in the post-market adverse event or, you know, a complaint that they had. Because the company policy was to to really try to get to a root cause. And what that meant was that someone had to call the customer at least twice to um, get more details if, if they didn't send enough details. So whenever I saw the root cause being use error or user error, um, I, I had to get on the phone and call this hospital and get in touch with a nurse that um, more oftentimes than not didn't remember what the details of the event were, um, or they just um, said, yeah, like, I don't know. I don't think that it was related uh, to the user and they were, you know, oftentimes blame the device or vice versa and really not get to the details of what actually might've happened. So um, that personally was 
again, eye-opening and uh, a bit frustrating <laughs> as a young engineer as well. So I really tried to dig back and, and look at the process and see what actually was happening and how we could improve the information that we were getting up front. Um, so at that time, I uh, was making friends with people from the call center and I dug in and tried to see um, what their process was for the intake. Um, so uh, I got to sit on a couple of calls and and work on the actual intake uh, to basically get more information about what happened during the Avers event. Um, so yeah, just those are two examples of what's really launched me into discovering human factors. Um, and you know, as you know, I met you um, at that medical device manufacturer, and I'm grateful that we kept in touch because. Then eventually I had the chance to join the human factors team um, at the FDA. And um, that's, you know, a whole nother uh, adventure of about five years. So, yeah, I'd be happy to also get into the time that we um, overlapped there, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting. So I, I came into human factors from post-market issues as well. And, and I don't I remember know that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for me, it was, I was working as, you know, as an engineer, we learn a lot about systems and design and we're looking at very specific, uh, you know, mechanical, electrical problems, right. Um, and understanding those. And then in post-market, you start seeing issues that are use related. And I know for me as an engineer, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> There's this whole other factor we're not considering. Um, how do we how do we consider that? So mm -hmm. I don't know. Was that similar to your experience? Absolutely. Like I said, I experienced this sort of frustration of not being able to solve the problem. Well, even uh, before that, figuring out what actually the problem is, um, I remember feeling great satisfaction that um, we were able to get to a root cause for a particular surgical device uh, overheating. So through like a combination of talking to, reaching out to these customers and trending the complaint data, getting together with the Kappa team, interacting in particular with the design engineer at that time, who ended up being a great mentor, you know, I had the chance to actually contribute to closing the loop on that particular device issue, which was very satisfying. Um, and it helped pivot me into actually becoming a design engineer and going down that route um, because I wanted to do, do a little bit more uh, in those projects. I wanted to become the one that then um, after the root cause was, uh, had after we had some confidence that there was a root cause that was related to design, um, then, you know, the product engineers at the time who are the design engineers in the post-market realm at the company, um, would take it and run with it and um, uh, pro start prototyping and um, start running tests, uh, uh, go down design verification validation. So that was a, a realm that I thought was very interesting and um, I wanted to be a part of. So at that point in my career, I, I pivoted into uh, R&D <clears throat> and um and had a really great experience there as well. Um, it was a relatively small team that focused on um, devices that help people with back pain. Um, so it's, you know, something I think we can all relate to. Um, the products were really interesting because they're min minimally invasive. Um, 
So that uh, was another chance I had to be exposed to human factors. Um, you know, I, I remember working on a product that um, that interventional radiologists use to access uh, vertebral bodies. Um, but there was an issue with the stylet of the needle popping out. Um, so I basically worked with a more senior engineer to come up with a solution. Um, well, to be fair, most of the solution was already designed. Um, and the junior engineers were there to try to finesse it and get to a final stage. Um, but, you know, through that process, I... Uh, was exposed to sales reps that had a bunch of customers and specifically the surgeons that were complaining about this problem. Um, and uh, I, I think it was really interesting to go out and actually um, talk to the surgeons themselves and um, do initial, you know, formative human factors evaluations with them out, out in the field with cadavers and uh, think about it more from the whole totality of, of those surgeons, um, you know, are they right-handed, left-handed? Are they, um, you know, are they going to ha all have the same anatomy to be able to group the stylet? That's the new one that we were proposing. Um, so those characteristics came into play as well. It wasn't always offered up either by the users. Um, you know, I, I also had to observe and try to think ahead and have these um, possibilities in mind. So that was really wonderful. And um, I think at the time you were trying to start the human factors program or um, <laughs> like in, in the quality, the QMS uh, of the company, but pounding yeah. the drum of human factors. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Like during those times, it was a bit wild west. It's before the draft guidance even came out probably right around probably, that time. Yes. yes <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm. Excellent. I, I find it interesting as as you talk through your career, you you have talked about your your engineering and your work with the devices, but you've also referenced you know from the beginning from the work you did during uh, your studies um, on the patients and the the people being served by the products is 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 that a motivating factor? It sounds like you started in this field very early in your even your career journey, even in school. Absolutely, I. I went to school with the intention of, hey, I think I was leaning towards going to medical school and I was doing all of the courses that uh, would lead me there. But, you know, that that first experience that I had referenced with Engineer World Health um, is something that I always will be grateful for. And, and I attribute to that pivot in my decision to stick with engineering and go to grad school, actually. So... Um, and I, I'm lucky that the professor um, from that program, shout out to Dr. Malkin, um, he also was a huge um, mentor and uh, and uh, had like a visionary for what it would look like um, to help, you know, rural hospitals or third world hospitals um, get up onto their own feet and equip them to continue to serve, equip them, meaning the engineering technicians at these hospitals to continue to be able to serve um, the hospitals, uh, you know, even after we left for, for the end of summer, you know? So I think that was, that was awesome. And um, it was day and night, you know, the, the hospital that we were at didn't have guaranteed power. So there were sometimes, 
met a couple of times where the power was shut off and um, we would run over to the main engineering technician and see if they, he needed help to get the generator up and running again. So, um, and then, and then we also made friends with the anesthesiologist and he had scrubbed in to help um, a young lady uh, give birth. And, and then the power went out during that time too. Like he, he actually, well, he had let us scrub in um, just to be able to observe, you know, like for educational purposes. And I was observing how calm the, surgical team was during that moment you know it was just like day and night I think compared to if that had happened in the U.S. Um, they they just took it for granted and rolled with it um, so again that's we talk about use environment so their use environment of OR, of OR what it's like to be an OR is so different I think from um, maybe other expectations yeah yeah definitely I think healthcare practitioners in general are very resilient folks. I, <laughs> in my experience, they're really good at rolling with it. Um, mm-hmm. But you even be. in extenuating circumstances, that yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess there's a reason it's called the sharp end of healthcare, right? <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing you had mentioned is uh, you'd mentioned coming into human factors. But, from biomedical engineering and um, worked in quality and research and design engineering as well. Um, I, I think that is one of the things I get excited about with HF is the the diversity of the field that we're in and, and how people are coming into it from different directions with different backgrounds and, and all of that comes together to better understand, you know, how, how our end users and the, and the technology we're developing can interact. They're, they're uh, team players, right? Um, yeah. I actually also think something from your background, I think that is very interesting as you're bringing it up is, you know, the, the, the field of human factors is, is understanding the technology, but also understanding the, the people and the situations around it. And so like the experiences you just described, um, I'm, I'm picturing you watching this from like an ethnographer's lens, right? <laughs> Understanding um, that use environment and, and what, what those healthcare practitioners are exposed to. Um, but you've also had experiences, you've lived in a lot of uh, different um, cultures, even uh, countries, but different cultures. Um, and do, do you find that, that your exposure to um, just living in different areas and understanding different languages and cultures helps you to yeah, I, I think I think it does. Um, I think it gives me. I, I I hope it gives me more empathy and awareness. Uh, so I, I didn't mention another experience I had before joining Agilis. I also worked um, on a startup company called Vigor, who focuses on people that have COPD and asthma, and partners them with virtual coaches. So. Before I had joined, I'll be honest, I didn't know that much about COPD, but um, it is often, and the majority of folks that have it, um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, tend to be older and exposed to uh, bad air quality, basically. Um, And that could have started happening from an earlier age, too, uh, or um, earlier career if they had worked at a plant that had you know, bad, bad air quality and uh, chemicals coming out of it. So from the very beginning, you know, the, these 
um, uh, rural folks and and people on the lower socioeconomic ends of the spectrum um, are more likely to have this disease. Um, so I, I guess I'd always known that fact, but that that's the reality of it. And then same with asthma too. If kids are growing up um, closer to these uh, environments and they their families can't afford to get to live, you know, somewhere that has better air quality or aren't, you know, educated in that, then um, they are more likely to grow up with asthma. Um, so it's it's really sad, and I was pretty uh, encouraged by by the team at the startup to. Um, to be resilient, as you're saying, and um, to be flexible in terms of uh, the product that we ended up presenting and finding useful to work with these people, basically. So I, yeah, and at the end of the day, instead of, for example, um, starting with a mobile medical app and um, a kind of more expensive spirometer, we ended up at Okay, let's say we hire coaches that live relatively close or, or wouldn't be wouldn't mind driving 20, 30 minutes to these people, at least for an initial setup call um, or setup in-person visit. Um, and then from there, understand their situation. If if they we actually did run to people that didn't have reliable connection, so reliable phone service, um, Wi-Fi. So it wasn't even a possibility to get on the phone with them um, reliably um, or, or ask them to download an app. Maybe they didn't even have a smartphone. We got to the point of mailing out um, calendars for them to keep track of their diet, their exercise, um, give them pointers for how to breathe. Um, it was <laughs> it was a lot operations-wise um, because then on the op- opposite side of the spectrum, we did have people that were very comfortable with technology that could use our app um, that I-, I think we could be a little bit more hands-off on. Um, but just for the purposes of the pilot, like understanding the full spectrum and language plays into it too. I had the chance to live in Puerto Rico who unfortunately tend to not be a part of the conversation that often in terms of medical devices, even though they're a U.S. territory, technically. Um, so I, I think there's quite a few um, cool and, uh, and different cultural differences um, uh, over there, too, compared to main, mainland U.S. You know, I could get into it, too. You know, yeah. if, if we're talking about real-world evidence, uh, even there's there's bias there, like, as well, potentially, um, or... To be quite honest, if we're discussing human factors testing, I don't think we often talk about um, recruiting in Puerto Rico <laughs> or Alaska or Hawaii, you know. So, yeah, like, I think it's it's interesting because, yeah, I consider U.S. To, obviously, U.S. is a country, but it's such a melting pot. Um, and I, I think we try our best to get a good cross-section, but sometimes I wonder if we could do more. Um, to get like a bigger uh, understanding of um, who our customers are. Mm-hmm. Like now, I've, now I have a, a an image in my mind of this uh, research project, at least to characterize the user groups of, from different areas of of the U.S. and the U.S. territories. <laughs> Go back whenever we have PhD. the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds interesting. 
And I, the other thing is, as you bring that up, I, I'm, I think on some recent developments that have happened in the clinical trial space uh, that are really driving uh, higher diversity within clinical trials. Um, that is, it's been very good to see um, the FDA, you know, giving direction and guidance on on that front as well. Um, yeah, I've definitely been encouraged to see that as well. That's where we'll end today. And next time, Rita and Shannon reflect on their recent experiences at the RAPS Convergence in Montreal. You won't want to miss that, so be sure you're subscribed to this podcast on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on what Kymanox offers, visit kymanox.com. That's K-Y-M-A-N-O-X.com. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon on The Factor.